0: Hello, and welcome to Talking Dirty at the Library, where we'll talk about what's growing here in Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. Each podcast features Master Gardener experts discussing ways we can cultivate better gardens and better lifestyles through local gardening and Limestone County Extension programs. Hello everyone, this is Karen Malone and Sandy Campbell. We are local Limestone County Master Gardeners, and today we're going to talk about invasive species what they are, and how you can get rid of them in your yard or property. An invasive species is uh, simply any kind of animal or plant from another region of the world that doesn't belong in their new environment. But today we're going to focus mainly on botanical species, but we'll talk a little bit about animals just because you can't. They're intertwined. It's part of the web, so...
1: It's been interesting to me, as I've done a little research on invasives, to learn how many there are. It's
0: estimated in the United States there's 3,300 invasive species, and many of them here in the southeast. And yeah. mainly because our area of the country is it's so biodiverse, we get plenty of rain lots of warm sunshine. So the things that help our native species Mm -hmm. are good for growing. The invasive species as well.
1: I know that we're all familiar with kudzu. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I was reading that there's something like, I don't remember if it was 15,000 or 25,000 acres of kudzu here in Alabama. Well, you know, it's interesting. I lived in Oxford,
0: Mississippi for about 10 years. But um There in Oxford is a USDA erosion lab, and they introduced kudzu into that area in Mississippi because there's so many deep ravines there, and the water runoff, just wanting to preserve soil. So this is typical of an invasive species. We'll bring something in to solve a problem, and then it creates another problem. And most invasive species were brought over as ornamentals because they're beautiful and we like them and we enjoy them. And then, of course, many invasive species have kind of hitched a ride, you know, somehow, some way on a boat or in wood or in the packing material of some sort of, you know, shipment. So yeah. they come in all kinds of ways. And then once they're here, uh, especially like water species. They'll catch a ride on one boat. A fisherman might fish in this lake, and then he might go to a whole different watershed, unbeknownst to him. He may have this little plant wound around his propellers on his motor, and he gets in another lake or water body and introduces it there. And people don't do it intentionally, but we've really got to become much more aware of what we're doing.
1: Yes. Uh, I remember talking about kudzu. My grandmother had a long front porch that faced the west, and so it'd get afternoon sun. And she had a cord from the ground to the roof in a zigzag shape. Yeah. And there was a plant growing on it. And it wasn't until I was probably a teenager that I understood that that was kudzu. But it wasn't invasive there because I'm sure she kept it pruned. Right, right. But it really provided a good shade for that front porch. Oh, yeah.
0: And it's deciduous. So yes. in the winter, it'd let the sun in when you wanted it. Right. In the summer, the leaves would provide shade. Yes. And it. So, yeah, we use plants like that all the time. What's interesting about kudzu is it doesn't have a native predator here, which is what allows it to just spread so rapidly. And there are lots of studies out there trying to figure out different organisms, pathogens, whatever, that can help rid it. But people become creative. I, I uh, When I was in Mississippi, one of my friends was a basket weaver, and I said, I want to learn how to basket weave. And he took me out, and we got grapevine and kudzu
1: vine, and Mm -hmm. made some beautiful baskets. Yes, I knew a lady in Madison who did that. She said, I never had anyone complain when I asked if I could trim their kudzu. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I even think about that in your grandmother. So in my yard, or the yard that I'm living in, is my um, mother-in-law's house. So when we moved in there, there was honeysuckle, and it's an Asian variety. So... I, honestly, I love the smell of honey. Stalker. Oh, I do too. And I have great memories of it growing up as a child. We used to, in the summertime, you know, pull the little stamen out and right. suck the honey out of it. And um, so what I've done, instead of trying to eradicate every bit of that, I just severely cut it back every year. Uh Any vines that try to run off, I just trim them down. So you can have an invasive in your yard if you're aware of how to keep it trimmed back and maintain it. And just understand, it's probably going to take a little more work than your native plant. Right. And if you want a low-maintenance yard, (laughs) you might want to get rid of it.
1: (laughs) So You were talking about the um, invasives in the water. And I think about Gunnersville Lake and the milfoil that's mm-hmm. over there, yeah. and how I know for a number of years they would spray and try to get rid of the milfoil because it it takes over and gets rid of the native plants. Yeah. But I've heard some people say that you know you go to the milfoil and you can catch the fish, and then I also hear that it can kill the fish. Mm-hmm. So why yeah. is that? Yeah.
0: Well. All of those water plants, they get so dense that they cut off light. So all the organisms, the flora that live below that mat, aren't getting the light that they need to grow. Initially, what it'll do is it kills off all of those other plants, and then now all you have is the milfoil, or another one is the giant salvias, another one in lakes uh, in the southeast so then uh, with all that dead plant matter decaying, you get an oxygen deprivation, and it's just a whole cycle. Okay. And then so when the oxygen gets low, then the fish can die. So initially when it first arrives, I'm sure the fish like to hang out underneath it. Yeah. But once it gets so big and overtakes the whole area, then it becomes detrimental.
1: So. And I guess since it is so dense... That's why the water gets so murky mm-hmm. and you can't see. Yeah. So you don't have the beautiful, clear lakes anymore. Mm-mm.
0: One way I like to think of invasive species is it's kind of almost like a, a cancer tumor. You know, So a cancer tumor needs resources to grow. And what it does is it takes resources away from your other cells in your body to grow. And so for that to thrive, the others start dying off. And so in nature, the same thing, when these invasive species come in, they're taking resources from the native plants, and eventually they just kind of edge them out. And then the new plants that have come in, these invasives, the birds, the insects, the squirrels, the mammals, they can't use them because they didn't grow together with them over the millennia. So they don't have this symbiotic relationship. So Maybe the leaves are beautiful, and they may have some sort of berries, but the animal can't digest them or they don't have the right amount of protein or I mean it's just a very complicated web, yeah, and so everything else starts maybe not necessarily dying off but certainly not thriving like it could, so I always tell people because they think, well, they're so pretty, why you know surely it won't hurt to have them in my yard. And it's okay to have them in your yard. As a matter of fact, you're probably never going to get rid of every non-native plant. I mean, that's just impossible. And it would take the joy out of your yard because many of them are floral ornamentals that we enjoy. But just become educated and understand their role. And maybe there's some that you don't... If it's got berries that birds, you know, litter all over the place, such as the Chinese privet or the Nandina, Yes. then... Those, let's get rid of those. Let's put something else in their place that the birds aren't spreading, you know.
1: I made the mistake of planting some of the Nandina, the the bad kind, the yeah. uh, Nandina domestica. And I'm I'm still fighting that battle because I noticed just this last week that there's some that have sprouted up over in the wooded area. Yeah. So I've got to get those dug up. <laughs> had all, Got rid of all the woods that I had yes. intentionally planted, but... Right. you just you learn by doing right exactly and I think probably within the last maybe 10 years
0: people are really becoming aware of the impact you know uh, of these plants let's just go back to the Bradford pear that's right now just so prolific you see it blooming everywhere it is beautiful but back in the 90s that tree was promoted, especially to cities. It has a great downtown tree, you know, planting mm-hmm. them on your sidewalks, out on your parking spaces because one it's not very big. two, it grows fast. Three, it has these beautiful flowers in the spring and lovely foliage in the fall. So man, I mean, it was just like crazy how many cities just went all in on this Bradford pear. Well, what they didn't realize is about 10 years into it, all these Bradford pears look
1: terrible
0: because it's a fast-growing tree. The it's st- weak. Yes, and any tree that grows fast is going to be weak. Wow. The, the wood's not strong. The limbs were breaking. They were looking tacky. And, of course, nobody mentioned about all the crud that falls on your car when you
1: park under right. a Bradford
0: tree in the spring. Well,
1: that and, pollen is pretty bad. Yeah,
0: pollen and the you know all of that debris. So... We, we kind of have a marketing problem, I guess, I would say, with these ornamentals. They are promoted as being such wonderful solutions, and nobody ever stops to think about this tree doesn't belong here, this plant doesn't belong here, what is going to be the long term right. down the road.
1: That's true. Yeah. yeah. Another one that is invasive that I loved as a child was the mimosa tree. <laughs> Again, at my grandmother's house, she had one. That my cousins and I would climb up in the yeah. tree and take those little puffs, and we would pretend we were putting powder on our face. Yeah. And my dad always hated those trees, and I never understood why. <laughs> now I know because you have one, you have a hundred. Yeah. yeah. No.
0: Gosh, whose grandmother didn't have one of those trees? I have one of the very same yes. memories. She had that tree, and I just thought it was beautiful, and it smells so good. It did. Lurking. But yeah, it was our climbing tree in her backyard and do powder puff things.
1: Yes. <laughs> but I was in a nursery in Nashville just a couple of years ago, and there was a lady who came in and asked for one of those. I think she had called every nursery in the Nashville area. She wanted a mimosa tree. She said, I know some people think it's invasive, but I want it. Yeah. So, you know, how do you stop that? Yeah.
0: When you want what you want, I guess you go and get it. That's
1: right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what can we do to help get rid of all of these invasives?
0: To to just be kind of practical, start with your, your yard. Most people listening to this, I'm going to assume, are in an urban setting. It may be a little rural, but everybody's got areas that they mow. And there is a difference between a lawn and a yard. Right. <laughs> a lawn is one of those, you know, you got some sort of specialized species Bermuda, St. Augustine, some uh, zoysia, some sort of grass that you're really trying to thrive and take over. But that takes a lot of work because none of our lawn grasses in the United States are native. They've all been brought in from somewhere else.
1: I did not realize that. Yeah,
0: not a single lawn grass. Things that we specifically plant for a lawn are not native. So that's why they take so much work.
1: Well, they sure do that. Yeah,
0: because the, the wonderful thing about natives is they're accustomed to the soil that they're growing in. They've had millennia to get used to poor soil, whether it's dry clay to alkaline to whatever. They grow well in that. But if you bring in a grass that's not used to that, now you got to start modifying the soil, fertilizing it, and all of that. So that's where all the work comes in. And so we got this idea that we have to have this huge lawn. The best analogy I heard is think of your lawn as not wall-to-wall carpet, but just area rugs. So if you want a nice little lawn for your kids or your grandkids or your pets to play in, just make a small maybe 10 by 10 area and the rest of your yard you know let it be yard whatever kind of the native you know species of grasses and quote unquote weeds that are native just let those grow and then you can start moving from the outer edges of your property inward transferring between the ornamentals or the invasive plants, getting rid of those, and then bringing in natives and uh, things that are beneficial to plant life and animal life. Like, for example, when we moved into my mother-in-law's house to help her, it's a little more than an acre, and it's a lot of work. A lot of property. And she was typical of most gardeners. If she saw something pretty at, you know, a big box store that had a nice bloom on it, she bought it and she brought it home. She stuck it in the ground. It might not have been in the right place even, but most of it were non-natives. So I just started slowly going around and getting rid of things. So my first thing was to get rid of the, the pear trees, the Bradford pears. Um, lots of privet opened up a whole area, which is it's is just amazing if you watch, as you start getting rid of these things, how the birds and the other critters react in the area. It's it's just like a totally, it's a different playground for them. They'll start using trees and coming around and, and burying nuts or whatever the squirrels do that they normally wouldn't have. So it's a long process. It's not one quick, easy uh, thing. So. So I kind of want to go back to how invasive species have taken over North America. And honestly, we can think about other countries are having the same trouble. You know, if you go to China, there's invasive species there. All over Europe, there's invasive species right. there. Because we humans, as we move around, we've shared plants, we've carried plants. But as our population has gotten larger, we've taken up more natural space, right? So we're, we keep encroaching into uh, wilder spots. And so as we condense the natural spaces, then with the invasives coming in, that really helps degrade the whole biodiversity of those little areas that are left. Um, There is a gentleman, Tallamy is his last name, but he is a huge naturalist. And he has proposed this idea that he calls the uh, national park yards or lawns or something. so he talks about how we have gone to great lengths to make national parks in the part of the United States. But he says it's not real effective even though they oftentimes are hundreds and thousands of acres. They're segmented all across the country. You know, they're not interconnected. Right. And he said, you know, if you took all of the lawns in the United States and took the acreage of them, it would, like, be five times what we have in national parks. So he says, if we can take our little patchwork quilt of lawns, and most of them are connected in these urban areas— and push back non-natives and try to plant more natives, then you're kind of creating a swath of food and resources for the animals out there, the insects and all. It's a wonderful idea. It is a good idea. And he says, you know, if you think about it with your neighbors, let's say your neighbor might have an interest in monarch butterflies. And so you say, hey, if you'll plant the butterfly milkweed, I'll plant some too. And so combined, the two of us will provide more. Or getting rid of something like, for example, the privet that I've gotten rid of in my yard, but in my neighbor's yard next door, it's full of privet. So, hey, how about we get out here and get rid of this together? So making those little connections and corridors where, amazingly, insects and animals can move through nature. And they're not just chopped up. And like I mentioned before, lawns are not native. So they don't provide any really resource for no. for any organism. You know, we think about our lawns. Let's say an oak tree is a great native plant. And probably one of the best plants you can have in your yard is an oak tree. Uh, or several oak, if you're lucky enough to have a yard that big. <laughs> but if the all the caterpillars and bugs that live up in the limbs and in the fall they drop down in their larva stage if they drop down on a hard you know compacted lawn that's been mowed for decades they can't you know get down in the soil they can't go where they need to go they can't get under leaf litter because we've manicured all that so it really almost defeats the purpose of having that huge oak tree we need to be able to go okay it's okay not to have a lawn under there it's hard to grow grass under there anyway yes indeed, if you're yes. going to grow some sort of ground cover instead of bringing in a, a non-native all the rhododendrons you know the azaleas all of those they're they're native they're going to provide a soft landing they're going to provide leaf litter and just letting that leaf litter stay there all winter all winter, right. instead of going in and chopping it up, manicuring it, and raking it up, or whatever, and some nectar—they also
1: provide some nectar for the bees. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's the kind of thing you're looking at. Is I've got this great tree that's a host to many moths and butterflies and other bugs and critters that are good for the birds. That are in turn are good for you know all of nature. So let me help that along by not manicuring underneath the tree. Yes.
1: Yeah. I've got an area in my front yard. Well, it has probably six or eight oak trees, kind of in an oval shape. Yeah. And we fought the battle for years with the grass not growing. So my son said, why don't we just make all of this a flower bed? So that's what we've done. and It's made it a whole lot easier. Yeah. And I can have my... Got some rhododendrons in there and shade-loving plants, right. and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. And it's less work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. I always promote native.
0: It, it's going to be less work in the long run. You know, you're not battling nature to try to get something to grow where it doesn't want to grow. Um, and it's just not natural. Right. You know? um, so the other thing, too, is when you're planting and designing and thinking about the future, as I mentioned earlier, not just starting with a good oak that you may be lucky enough to have in your yard. Um, and if you only have one tree, I'd say if you, if you've got the space, go ahead and add another. And here's the reason, because in nature, trees grow and grows. Right. You know, if you see a lone oak tree out somewhere is because someone's farmed all the land around it it didn't start out that way it's turned out to be a beautiful you know mighty oak out in the middle of a pasture but uh you know that's not how trees naturally grow and what happens is their roots intertwine and it makes them stronger so people worry about oh if i have this huge tree close to my house it could fall over on it in a windstorm well if you've got one there's a very good chance but if you have two or three they're not going to fall over Now, you might get some broken limbs out of it in a strong high wind, but the whole tree isn't going to fall over. So, if you mentally think about every tree that you've ever seen blown over in a storm, it was by itself. Right. It It wasn't. It was. Yeah. it's, It's how it happens. So, it'll actually help strengthen and protect your house if you're concerned about that. Then, the other thing is to plant for specialist pollinators. Native bees gather pollen from specialized species, so they're gathering pollen for their larvae. That's what they feed their their babies. Um, we're still learning a lot about honeybees, but we do know for sure that these are the best plants for bee species. Anything in the perennial sunflower family, the various goldenrods, and native willows, asters, and blueberries. So, if you can kind of get any sort of mix of those in your yard, and then, like I said, uh, network with your neighbors, if you can kind of help build a larger patch of biodiversity.
1: That's a good way to get to know your neighbor better, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And— there are people who live in neighborhoods that have HOAs, and I'll hear a lot of times people say, well, my yard has to be trim and proper. Well, once again, go back to your little rug instead of your, you know, wall-to-wall carpet. As long as it's neat and tidy, you know, that's really what they're looking yes. for. And, you know, you're looking at, they want to maintain property values. Um, but you can there's so much you can do that's not you know just letting it go wild you know you can still make it look manicured but have lots of beneficial plants there so the other nice thing about native plants that we talked about earlier is they are adapted to the low nitrogen soils that we have here I've done so many soil tests in my yard and it's just over abundant with phosphorus <laughs> you know <laughs> and you know And one thing we have to remember about soil tests are they were created for growing food, you know, maximizing the best production, the highest yield for growing food. Right. And so most of us aren't growing food in our yard. I mean, you may have your garden that you want to adjust your soil for, but overall, just don't worry about the soil in your yard. Don't worry about the pH of the soil in your yard because the plant's, that grew up here. That's what they grew up in, and they, they're
1: used to that. They don't need any adjustment. Um, I would like to take a moment to let people know that if they do need a soil test, that they can get the kits. We have them here at the Ask a Master Gardener desk at the library, and you also can get the kits at the extension office. Yeah. So it's yeah. very easy.
0: Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is we spray a lot for bugs, you know, things that we consider pests. And one thing that we don't realize is we're interrupting the food web. So let's take the lowly little wasp that we all, you know, (laughs) spray their little nest and kill them all because, you know, they might sting us. Well, a wasp isn't going to sting you unless you mess with them. But those wasps eat your little white flies and your aphids and your little bugs that we consider nuisance. So a lot of times, if you've killed all the wasps under your eaves, you will find that you might get a white fly overpopulation. It's like, all of a sudden, where did these white flies come from? Well, all the wasps that eat them are gone now. So I always tell people, be patient, too, with um, trying to get rid of bugs because a lot of times, if you'll just wait, I know it's hard, I know it's hard <laughs> if you can just wait another week, another few days, then you may find that the organism that eats them shows up, but they uh but they will if you, if they're around, and I've seen a lot lately these little bee hives, little holes in wood for Have the
1: little slots,
0: yeah, for bees and to and these uh pollinators that a lot of times aren't necessarily um social bees, they kind of go on on their own and that's a good idea, but one thing that's happened is don't take a block of wood and put like a dozen holes in it and set it out, because what you're doing is you're concentrating all those bees in one place, and their predators now know like there's a source there. We'll wait for them to come out of the hole, so you need to kind of make those little hives in different places around your yard. I think most people have seen those, but
1: that's a good idea. I would not
0: have thought of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's once again we got on board. Hey, let's do something good for the bees. But then we didn't realize that those bees don't normally stay in a hive right. like that. You know, I mean, they'll take advantage of those holes. But you're least, helping
1: the predator. Yeah, yeah. We got it.
0: <laughs> there are smart little critters out there, and they're watching. So one thing that I got real excited about a couple of summers ago. I I had a uh, light zapper out in my yard and. I didn't have any tomato hornworms, and it took me a couple of seasons to figure out. And I realized, oh, it's because I had that light zapper out there, and it's killing those moths. But what I realized last summer was it was getting the lightning bugs, too. The Aww. lightning bugs were attractive, and I'm like, oh, okay. So, yeah, it's good for the moths, but it's attracting the beneficial bugs, too, right. so I so I took it down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we so, got to have our lightning bugs.
0: <laughs> yeah, we do. That's another good summer memory. That's right. And what was really kind of um, fun with all of that is I feed the birds in my backyard. It keeps them out of my garden. Uh, they don't eat on my tomatoes and stuff. I, don't, I just don't have them taking on my fruit. And what I do is, like in the summertime, I may take apple cores, grapes, you know, just things that are starting to go bad, but, I, you know, maybe too mushy for me to eat, and I'll put it out for them. And so it's kind of like, oh, that's easy pickings. I won't even mess with, you know, trying to get into the garden and get a tomato when I can just pick up a piece here. Yeah, great idea.
1: Yeah. Well, you had the correlation about the invasives being like a cancer. I think of it um, also something like litter that you see on the side of the road. With one piece, you may not think it's a problem, but with a lot of it, it can get away from you in a hurry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So gardening should be fun, you know. I mean, even though this is kind of like a heavy subject and it seems like, oh gosh, I can't, you know, even my little part, I can't, how's it going to make a difference? Just start with one. So if you find you have privet in your yard, say, "Hey, you know, my goal is within five years to have it all eradicated out of my area." You know, if you look at it in just little pieces and steps, it's much more manageable.
1: Like it's, eating an elephant.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who had looked at that initially would thought, "Oh, I just need to get a bulldozer in here and just you know wipe this out." Right. But, you know, just with elbow grease and a shovel, you can you can do you a can lot. do it. Yeah, that's right.
1: You can do it. I don't have any in my yard, but I do in my wooded area. So anytime you have some extra time, just come on over and you can help me get rid of it.
0: (laughs) All right. The two resources that I want to mention, and uh, one of them is called the Non-Native Invasive Plants of Southern Forests. I like this, this book because you can carry it with you. Right. I, it's almost like a field guide. You can walk outside with it, look at it, got it. Um, and then the other thing is the proven method of eradication. Some of them you can dig up, and that's fine. Some of them you can pull up. Some of them you try to pull up, and they're going to break off and leave the roots in. Right. And some of them, honestly, you will have to use some sort of herbicide. You know, as much as I hate recommending that sort of thing. Like, for example, privet can be dug up as long as it's just a few diameters wide. But once it gets really, you know, up to three or four diameters, that's tough to right. dig that out. So, you know, you may end up having to cut it down and then take a brush killer and, and just paint it on the stump. And then Alabama has uh, Alabama invasive uh Plant Council. Plant Council. If you will go to their website, they'll have uh, information about invasive plants and how to, to get rid of them. And a good resource to find out what plants support local food webs, going by zip code, is the National Wildlife Foundation's Native Plant Finder good good resource yeah you can google that in and it'll ask for your zip code and then it'll pop up trees herbs woodies -woodies, non-woodies plants
1: well i hope everybody's enjoyed this and uh, learned a little bit i know i have yeah me too
0: anytime you have a question for the master gardeners In the summertime, we'll be at the farmer's market every Saturday. But in the meantime, we're at the library.
1: Every Tuesday and every first Saturday from 10 until 2. So please come by and visit us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been
0: listening to Talking Dirty at the Library, a podcast produced by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library in Athens, Alabama. This podcast is produced in cooperation with the Limestone County Extension Office and Master Gardener Program. Join us next time to see where we're growing. And to hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, please visit the Athens Limestone County Library website at alcpl.org.